the Rob Burgess Show. I am, of course, your host, Rob Burgess. On this, our second episode, our guest is Jonathan Fowler. Jonathan graduated with a BA in history from Indiana University in 2006. He is an unabashed left-wing political junkie. He has lived and worked in South Korea for over nine years, trying to help the citizens of that great nation hopefully talk pretty one day. You can find more about me by visiting my website at www.thisburgess.com. The official website for The Rob Burgess Show is www.therobburgessshow.com. Follow on Twitter at Rob Burgess Show. The podcast is hosted at Libsyn at therobburgessshow.libsyn.com. Like the page on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash The Rob Burgess Show. Follow on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com forward slash The Dash Rob Dash Burgess Dash Show. The email for the show is The Rob Burgess Show at gmail.com. And now, on to the show. What's up? Hey, Bob, how are you? Good, good. You know, before I uh, you picked up, there's like a seagull sound that plays on the um, on the ring. It's like caw, caw, right before. <laughs> really? Yeah. yeah, I have no idea what the ringtone is. Like when I first came to Korea, like I had, you know, you could put a song as your ringtone, but <laughs> I don't really do that anymore. Maybe I could. I don't know. <laughs> it was it was very peaceful. I, I've never heard a sound like that before. Someone's picked up. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, it is the land of the morning calm. Oh, that's true. That's true. That's awesome, dude. Well, so, thanks. Are we live? Dude, we are live and ready to go, man. Episode two. Oh, man. Wow, a lot of pressure. <laughs> but uh, before we get into all the stuff I know we're going to get into, probably should just introduce yourself. Um, you know, we've obviously known each other since high school. We uh, we lived together for four years when we were both students at IU. You're basically the, the person that made the introductions between me and my wife. Yeah, you played a big part in my life, and I'm excited that you're, you're here, man. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Most of that is true. Um, anyways, I'm, I'm Jonathan. Uh, Big Daddy Cha-Cha. Some people call me the Cha. Uh, and I went to university with uh, Rob, and uh, I studied history. These days I'm an English teacher in South Korea, uh, have been for nine years. About the same time that Ash and I moved to California was when you moved to, to South Korea, and you know our lives have been pretty parallel for a few years then, and then we just kind of, within the space of a few weeks, just went totally different directions, but I'm glad to, to have you here across the seas. So. Yeah, yeah, you guys have got to come visit me someday. Oh, absolutely, yeah. But uh, we may be uh, thinking about leaving the country more and more with the presidential election that's coming up, so... Which is a wonder, which is a wonderful segue into our first topic. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. It's uh, I've been following it closely. I'm a politics junkie, so I can't stay away from the news very long. So I watched the Republican debate well, maybe two nights ago. It was uh, very exciting, very interesting. 
uh, covered some new ground that maybe has never been covered in American politics <laughs> so bluntly before. I've been writing columns every week about, not every week, but every time there's a debate, I try to do some sort of roundup. And just watching that debate, I was like, you know, I have to explain this to like a family newspaper and I have to use words that are both going to be accurate, but also not vulgar to describe uh, what's being talked about here. Yeah, that's well, that's the interesting thing about Trump, I guess, is he's making making the he's making the, the the figurative aspects of <clears throat> certain parts of right-wing politics very literal for a lot of people I think mm-hmm. and he's stripping away a lot of the metaphor and he's he's turning it into a kind of a an actual thing that he wants to do or things that he wants to talk about or things that he wants to consider actually doing which is yeah, it's it's fascinating and a little bit scary. Yeah, absolutely. And I think lest we forget that the whole impetus for this, uh, actually the result of Marco Rubio, uh, the Florida senator, trying to get on Trump's level, you know, in the, in the time between this last debate and this most recent one, he definitely went after, he was like, it was, it was like the uh, Seinfeld episode with the jerk store called, they ran out of you, basically, kind of situation there was okay. like, it was I, like, I don't remember that episode oh, okay. was that a george moment that was a george was moment that? yes you, you guessed it correctly. like a george moment yeah exactly it was like this big uh, if i remember the episode correctly it was a big you know he had this line saved up that he was when well, next time he saw this guy he had this perfect retort that was you know that would the, oh. jer- the, the jerk store called they ran out of you <laughs> it was just such yeah, a I, it, lame joke that he had just been back a little bit yeah saving in his arsenal for so long anyway uh, at a rally a couple of days before Marco Rubio was like, you know, he, he was reading through Trump's tweets and like and making fun of his misspellings. And he was, uh, you know, like, uh, oh, I, this is the magic of audio. I could just insert the, the audio right here. He's always calling me little Marco. And I'll admit, the guy, he's taller than me. He's like 6'2", which is why I don't understand why his hands are the size of someone who's 5'2". Have you seen his hands? And you know what they say about men with small hands? You can't trust them. You can't trust them. Yeah, yeah. He, he he walked right up to the edge and then he backed away. Yeah, yeah. He's that's, like, you do the rest of the work. I, I brought you this far. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, yeah. but but he's not. But you you'd have to admit that Marco Rubio is not built like Trump. As as one of my coworkers said yesterday, he does not have that mean girl gene um, that Trump just so he so effortlessly falls into. Like he doesn't like he, he called him little Marco. Um, you know, he was calling, yeah. of course, Ted Cruz, Lion Ted, or whatever, which is such a schoolyard bully thing to pull. But, um, but That's yeah, true. It, but yeah, it's it's pretty yeah. amazing that these other candidates are trying to out Trump, Trump, and and coming up short every time. I, I think Rubio has got a little bit of a naturalness to his attacks, um, and I think it's kind of a situation where it seems like he they kind of had him on the leash, and then. Chris Christie said, hey, you're on a leash, and he's like, oh, oh, and his people told him, hey, okay, for the next debate, if if you just want to say something to somebody, just say whatever you feel, and he's kind of doing that now, and it's, you know, it's coming across a lot more naturally, but at the same time, yeah, he's, Donald Trump is, he can't be beat at this kind of, you know, they say, like, if you, if you want to wrestle with the pig in the mud or something, the pig likes it, and he's already been in the mud or something. I, I'm yeah, I think yeah, I think we know the 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 yeah exactly. Yeah, people can't tell the difference between 
you and the pig once you're done, you know, wrestling with them. But the pig likes it, and you just get, you know, dirty. So. Covered in mud. Yeah. Various things. Exactly. So Trump, yeah, he's he's been a interesting and exciting character. And I think, like, literally, I think he is literally a fascist. And I get in arguments with people on the Internet over this kind of thing all the time and stuff about, you know, how fascist, how fascist, how fascistic. I don't know what the uh, I think that's it. that is. Yeah, I think you got it. One one of those two times, maybe. But, you know, <laughs> it's like there's a 14-point definition written by somebody that I don't have right in front of me right now. But it seems to cover almost everything about Trump. So, Yeah, there's a uh, Matt Boers cartoon. Had a pretty funny discussion of that. He was uh, saying, oh, you know, it was just him a discussion with him and someone else, and he's like, yeah, I think Trump's a fascist, and the other person's like, well, technically, a fascist has to be against all free press, and Trump just wants to get rid of this part of it, and then they kind of pan out, and they show them both in, like, a, a concentration camp, and, and it's like, it was like uh, Trump's name on the side or something, it's kind of a future view of, like, where we're arguing the finer points of is Trump a fascist or not while we're both in the, in the prison camp, you know, under President Trump. Trump, you know, so. Yeah, it's it's going to get pretty nasty, and I think in the in a, a few days ago, in one of his things, I mean, he's had his he's had his goons beating people up at his speeches for months now. But the last thing was one of the what was it? One of the reporters stepped. He said, 18 inches outside the pen where Trump keeps them all locked away, and you know, got assaulted by a Secret Service agent, hmm. which is bizarre to me because the secret service is like as far as i understand it, it's an element of government right mm-hmm. and their purpose is to you know protect the candidates or the you know the president or the candidates for presidency from physical threats which obviously the press is not a physical threat to trump and yeah so he's already to a very small degree enlisted the government you know, the government's, um, what can we say, their monopoly on violence um, in his own politics. <laughs> so, you know, fascist. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, I think uh, he riles people up at his rallies, too, to kind of hate the press. And he, he points at them, and they're, they're, they're really bad guys and stuff. And, you know, it's uh, it's pretty amazing what, yeah, what the Secret Service did with that photojournalist. It was just basically, like, chokeslamming for nothing. Um, and I also yeah. love the concept of having a free speech zone, you know, or, like, a penning the press off. You know, that's, that's just amazing to me. It's like, I don't remember that part of the First Amendment where they're, like, behind the rope line only please <laughs> well bob this may be the last episode of your podcast as his way man we were getting off such a good start too <laughs> i know we just we had we went after the wrong people but um <laughs> yeah no it's um so that that aspect of it is pretty worrying i think and um and I, one thing I, i'm very disappointed in the press who were there because they didn't catch the whole video you know they didn't catch the whole video, so they only caught the video after the guy's like already on the ground and he's kicking back at the Secret Service guy. And so then when you argue with this like online with other people or something, all the conservatives are like, oh, well, it looked to me like the journalist was attacking the Secret Service agent and the Secret Service agent was just defending himself. So, you know, which is, you know, obviously totally stupid. I mean, why would a press person attack a Secret Service agent? Yeah. Um, there, you know, there may have been some video before the incident where, like, the the guy, you know, said some bad language to the Secret Service agent, but, you know, mm-hmm. 
you know, in secret, you're in the Secret Service. You've got to have some level of professionalism. So you've got to be able to take that kind of thing in stride from some, you know, mm-hmm. scrawny member of the press, <laughs> not yeah. assault them. You know, I think the Secret Service people are, are people like anyone else, and that's what's dangerous about these Trump rallies is that, you know, like when I saw Bill Clinton, I didn't think there was any danger of anyone getting chokeslammed, but that wasn't the vibe, you know. I mean, these things, like, it's like rallies, you know, like these are like people are getting jazzed up, and I don't know if you saw another video that actually came out of Louisville uh, where this uh, African-American woman was uh, escorted out, and you can just see her getting just shoved and followed and spit on just as she's getting exited and it's just it's just disgusting man it's like you haven't seen this kind of thing out and open in like 50 years you know since not since the end of jim crow do we have we seen such you know blatant you know disregard for civil rights um just and and you know people see other people doing these things too you know and they and they take it as an example as they, they can do it too and that's what's most dangerous i think about trump in these rallies i think like um I don't know. I think if I were going to a Trump pro- a Trump rally and I was going to protest or something, I would have some other people planted around to film the whole thing, you know, maybe be plants there to kind of talk to the people after the incident and kind of like, oh, man, yeah, you messed them up real good and everything. Yeah, we should hang out sometime or something or get their name somehow. And then I'd, like, be pursuing legal action for assault afterwards mm-hmm. because – I think the fact that nobody's suing anybody over this kind of thing, the fact that nobody's being held accountable, is a huge thing that allows it to continue. Mm-hmm. When the when the police don't stop it, when the courts don't stop it, when people don't, you know, one of the things this journalist said after he was walking outside and they were asking him, he said he's not going to press charges, which is like, um, wow, you want it to keep happening? Mm-hmm. You know, is this acceptable? Why are you not pressing charges? And you I think know that's a dangerous precedent. Absolutely. And if it happened to Trump, you know, he loves to sue and he would definitely use the legal system in his, you know, favor at whenever possible. So it's not like he wouldn't, you know, these people wouldn't give get as good as they would give. So he said he'll sue on behalf of anybody who sued or he'll sue on behalf of anybody who attacks a protester at his rallies. Hmm. But that happens so often. I, I don't, you know, Donald Trump seems to have a long history of throwing people working alongside him under the bus. <laughs> so I really don't think that he's going to put his money where his mouth is. He's got a big mouth, so. <laughs> yeah. And so, and eventually there could be so many people getting assaulted at his things. It could be, you know, it's probably already in the dozens of people. I mean, it could be like a class action lawsuit against the candidate as well as individual, you know, lawsuits against the the uh the goons themselves yeah pretty crazy um but what does this whole election look like to people from your vantage point i can't imagine watching this thing like it's it's strange enough being in america while this is happening but i can't imagine having your view and the people around you just watching this like from afar being like what is going on yeah well i tried to i tried to get some international perspective Mm -hmm. at the office today but I was really, really busy. I had extra like bochung, bochung, which basically means like a, like a kind of a makeup class or something. So I had less time in between classes than normal. But I, I shouted out to the Canadian guys. He was running out to lunch. I said, "Hey, what do you think of Trump?" And he said, "He's a fascist pig." Bye bye. <laughs> That's my international soundbite for you. Wow. Well, thank you. Thank you for reporting live from the street like that. I appreciate it. <laughs> Yeah, and that's a that's a, it was such a simple quote. I can give you that verbatim. 
Yeah, that's, yeah. That's a direct quote. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, most Koreans, I haven't heard much talk about Trump from them, mostly. Um, I don't know if they're, I'm sure they're seeing things in the news because I've seen, I've seen like on the Korean news and stuff that there's been some coverage of speeches and stuff like that. So they must be slightly aware of what he's done. Mm-hmm. But I haven't heard I haven't heard too much from them. Okay. Well, I also wonder just because he is obsessed with China, like he just can't stop talking about how terrible China is. So I didn't know if that had any sway with the Korean people or what their views on China were, or if they accidentally had the same viewpoint or something. Well, you know, before before the factory jobs went to China, they were in Korea. So you know, Korea used to have a a very I mean, to some degree, to probably to a greater degree than America, Korea still has, you know, factory and manufacturing jobs. But it's still, it's it's not to the degree that they had probably in the 70s or 80s or even the 90s. It's constantly kind of shifting and going overseas. Uh, I teach some business people, and they are managers of a group that makes cell phone touchscreen technology and stuff. And they're, most of their factories are in China already, so they do business with China. Um, a lot of people do business with China and Korea. But at the same time, I think, I don't know, Korea seems to have kind of a wait and see. I, I could be reading the reading the tea leaves wrong, but it seems like Korea has a kind of a wait and see attitude towards China and America. Partially because America wants Korea to be nice to Japan, and Japan and Korea hate each other. Mm-hmm. And China also doesn't really like Japan, and they're fighting over an island. So I think there's a kind of a fantasy in in the Korean mindset that that if worse comes to worst and there's a war with Japan or something like that or there's some huge issue with Japan that uh, China would be on Korea's side I don't know what they think would happen with North Korea because I don't think that China would be on their side then mm-hmm. although they do a lot of business together mm-hmm. but at the same time I mean they see China taking over parts of the South China Sea and you know taking over trade routes and stuff like that. Um, and they they wonder, I think they wonder if America is losing power and China is gaining power. So maybe Trump's right in that respect. But um, yeah. I, yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting, though. I mean, I, I do find myself, like, every once in a while, Trump will say something just because he doesn't have, you know, the same constraints that a normal politician does. Like, in the very first debate, he talked about, like, for example, campaign financing, and he they're basically like, why did you support Hillary Clinton? You know, she's, he's like, well, I needed something from her. I'm paraphrasing, but I needed something from mm-hmm. her. I gave money. She showed it to my wedding because I gave her money. Of course she did, you know, and all these guys are bought and paid for. <laughs> And you know he accidentally says something true every once in a while. So I think that's half. That's half of the battle. Mm-hmm. But the other half of the battle is: is, is he going to do something about it? Mm-hmm. And I don't think he is. Mm-hmm. I think he's satisfied with that system. And yeah. I think that's a, that's a huge difference between him and Bernie Sanders is that they're both to some degree talking about the problem of the system as far as that's the way the system works. Mm-hmm. And you know they're both talking about how they're not going to take big donor money. And, you know, Bernie Sanders gets a lot of small contributions. I've come pretty close to sending some money to him myself. And Donald Trump is, you know, he says he's not taking contributions, but they're saying that a lot of the money that he's funneling into his own campaign can be written off somehow or can be reimbursed to him at some point in the future. So he's not actually really losing anything. Um, but you know, the thing is, I mean, if we, if we want to solve the problem of money in politics, which I think most Americans agree is a huge problem, you know, both of these guys are a way to, you know, kind of thumb your nose at the, 
uh, the establishment. Um, but at the end of the day, Donald Trump is a billionaire who can afford to do this. And if he gets in, he could say, well, okay, see, I beat the big money in politics, and I did it with my own money, so anybody could do it. But the reality is that most Americans will never, ever be anywhere close to being able to do that. Whereas if Bernie Sanders gets in there and makes the changes that he talks about making, it could be a thing where more, you know, just regular people, regular citizens could find their way into political office, which I think, mm-hmm. you know, there may be some downsides to that as far as they're not professional politicians. And I think we've seen some of the downsides of that with the Tea Party and their... <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, their ways, but I think Bernie Sanders could possibly open up the, you know, the barrier. I read today somewhere that the kind of the the back and forth of politics isn't so much about uh, left and right anymore as it is people who have access and people who don't have access to kind of the the, the Washington power structure. Mm-hmm. And I think there's some truth to that. Basically, what I don't get is people that are like, well, if Bernie doesn't get the nomination, I'm either uh, one of two options, A, not voting, or I'm voting mm-hmm. for Trump. I just don't get yeah, that crossover. I, I, that, does this round, does, does, is this where the, the left and the right meet so far back on the, on the back side of the dark side of the moon that they, that they somehow meet? Like, I don't get it. Like, what, <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> Yeah, that's that's uh, that's disturbing, and you know Hillary talks about the Bernie Bros and stuff as a as a group, and I don't really know that the Bernie Bros exist as a group, but it would be frustrating if if any Bernie supporters were actually considering switching over to Trump if it didn't work out, and I, I guess the only way to understand that is that they want to vote for somebody who's outside of the Washington establishment, one way or the other, and I mean to some degree Bernie's a part of that because he's been a senator for almost 40 years or he's been in public service for 40 years or whatever, but, but he's clearly not somebody who, you know, is well liked and stuff and taken very seriously in Washington. So, yeah, I mean, you can look at back at some of his speeches and you can see he's like basically just preaching to like an empty chamber a lot of the times in the, um, in the, you know, Congress when he was a congressman, like he's like, he's like just reading these things into the record for posterity. And, you know, he's a very principled guy. And I really, I, what frustrates me is, you know, look at the Republican side, even now that we've winnowed it down to, I guess it's four. I don't know if we can lament uh, Dr. Ben Carson's exit from the race at this point officially yet. Um, but I think he's out. Yeah. <laughs> he said he doesn't see a path to done. the nomination, which he didn't really want to stop campaigning. I don't know. <laughs> maybe maybe if he maybe if he opened his eyes. He needs to get some he needs to spend more time with his bed. <laughs> he needs to get some sleep that guy. Yeah, he's Oh boy. He's uh, well, who knows? Maybe maybe uh, maybe Donald Trump can offer to pay off his uh, all of his campaign debts and stuff. So yeah. He'll become a Trump supporter now, like Christie did. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, they should bring you know. Cuba Gooding Jr. back to do the second part of his movie of his life. You know, he did the the first part. You know, his biography, Gifted Hands. You know, Cuba was the I've, star. Yeah, I've, I've heard of it. I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it either. But I would like to see a sequel uh, with yeah. <laughs> with Cuba. I don't know if Dr. I want to. I don't know if I want to watch it. It sounds like a really <laughs> violent movie. You know. He, Stabbing people and attacking his mother with a hammer. Uh, you know, for my good Christian values, I just don't know if that. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yes. <laughs> I love that moment in the 
campaign when it was like it, it, normally you'd want to like disavow having stabbed somebody, but he was like rushing to the front of the microphone, be like, "Look, no, I did. I really stabbed somebody. I really did." Yeah, I, I can't imagine what he wanted to gain out of that. <laughs> Ooh, the crucial stabbing people vote. We got to get that. Yeah, I guess it's to make his story more redemptive or something. Uh huh. But yeah. But anyway, the, where I was yeah. going with that was uh, just you know the, the the Republicans had seventeen candidates to start with, which was just an insane number of people. Mm-hmm. But you know, even at the fullest, you know, flowering of the Democratic side, even when you had Lincoln Chafee and Jim Webb in there, it was only five, and you know mm-hmm. they were basically just old white people for the most part. And it's just amazing to me how diverse the demographics are on the Republican side. You know, you've still got two Cubans in. You know, we had a fight, the debate for this last one, about which one was really more speaking Spanish than the other, which I thought was amazing. <laughs> um, but, and then, and then I, I, do- I was impressed by Ted Cruz when he came back in Spanish there, but then I read some things online later. I couldn't really hear what he said exactly, but I said he said something like, we'll speak Spanish right now if you want or something. Yeah, that was, that was the gist of it. Reviews. Yeah. And I, I read some reviews of it and stuff later. A lot of people who are, you know, less rusty on their Spanish than I am. So that his Spanish was actually really poor. Again, <laughs> yeah. not good, apparently. So, yeah, I think I read something but, similar. But yeah, no, I, that I, I just, thought that was an interesting thing to do at a, at a Republican debate because you know, <laughs> what Republican wants to hear somebody speaking Spanish? You know? <laughs> like, you know, you ought to speak American <laughs> when you're up on that stage. So, some people say Rubio might have baited him into, into doing that, and then Rubio didn't respond in Spanish, so mm. it was like. <laughs> Look at this guy speaking Spanish over here. Do you want that? What, but, was, what was his name? I forgot his name even. Louisiana. Bobby Jindal. Oh, Bobby Jindal. <laughs> oh, I almost forgot about Bobby Jindal. <laughs> yeah, they, they're, demographic, they're demographically diverse, but really, besides Trump, they're just offering, you know, different flavors of the same thing. You know, it, it's pretty close. They all worship Reagan. They all think trickle-down economics is the best. You know, you go down the line. It's, it's pretty similar, uh, except for Trump. But it's just amazing to me that the Democrat side only has this stark choice of Clinton or, or Bernie, and it's like, why is he the only one? You know, why is he such an outlier, and why is the Democratic Party not able to attract the diversity? Like, why isn't there 17, you know, Democratic candidates of all shapes and sizes and, and colors, you know? Well, I think I think most people on the Democratic side, you know, assume that it was Hillary's turn, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't know that that's really going to work out for her because, you know, a lot of times when a candidate loses an election or something and they, it's widely acknowledged that it's going to be their turn next time. You know, a lot of people say that, you know, George Bush, George W. Bush robbed. Yeah, I mean, they, they, uh, they say that W. robbed John McCain. And so then John McCain was like supposed to be the one in 2008. But he didn't succeed. You know, Obama, of course, beat Hillary in 2008. And then he, you know, put her in as the Secretary of State and stuff, and she got her resume padded a little more. And I think the idea was that she's just gonna, she's just gonna have the nomination. But nobody expected the Bernie. Mm-hmm. So. 
Yeah, and that's the thing, too, is that the DNC chair, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, is basically known to be in the pocket for Hillary. I mean, she was one of her campaign chairs during her 2008 run. Um, and, you know, I think the thinking was, uh, initially, when what the scenario you're talking about was of her being presumptive nominee, um, I think they wanted to de- de- limit the debate schedule. And if you look when those debates were, they were, like, at the most inconvenient times. And, you know, for all <laughs> poor Martin O'Malley, he couldn't get a break this season, but um, but he was right on one thing: is that you know she was basically trying to stifle the debates of the Democratic Party to favor Hillary, I guess, in the hopes that you know the less exposure she had to attack the make a mistake. Yeah, exactly. She wouldn't have the room to make that mistake. But what ended up happening is they realized that Hillary is actually really good at debating, and that she would actually need this. And then they expanded it by four debates. Um, so I think yeah. And initially, I think they were like, we're, we're, this is just going to be a walk, and if we expose our candidate to any extra scrutiny, it's going to be just bad for us, so we're not going to do that. But then they realized, once they had a real challenge in, in Bernie, that you know mm-hmm. they're going to need to have these debates, so I feel like they kind of switched course halfway through. Well, it's, I think that's a huge mistake to, um, to have limited the debates like that, because I think what we've seen is that Democratic voting is down in this election and Republican voting is up. That's and yeah. Republicans. I think I heard somewhere that they had 26 total debates scheduled over the whole, you know, the whole primary season. I, I that seemed high, but actually, based on the number, how frequently they're doing it, it seems like they're doing one every two weeks almost. Mm-hmm. It seems like that could actually be right. Honestly, I feel kind of bad about this, but I haven't actually gone and watched the last couple of Democratic debates. I've watched highlights and stuff, but I haven't sat down for the full two hours or whatever. But I've watched pretty much every one of the de- Republican debates because, you know, it's always going to be a shit show. You just never know what's going to happen. You know, you never know who's going to pull their dick out on stage, <laughs> literally or figuratively. <laughs> so, you know, it's, you know, it's the best show in town right now. So <laughs> I think it's a huge, huge mistake for the Democrats to have limited the number of uh, debates they had. And I think it's, you know, I think it's also, I, you know, I like Bernie Sanders obviously quite a bit, but I want him to. I know he has to be careful about how he takes the gloves off and stuff. I want him to take the gloves off on Hillary a little bit, though, because yeah. I think we need some fireworks on the on the Democratic uh, debate. You know, every time after the Democratic debate, the headline's always, oh, you know, well, usually the headline is Hillary won, but usually the polling says Bernie won. But usually everybody just says basically, oh, well, you know, it was a very policy-focused discussion. It was a mature discussion. You know, that everybody kept it above the belt, you know, and that's, you know, that's not very exciting right now. <laughs> so, and when, and like I was saying, when you look at like how the Republicans are voting in greater numbers right now than Democrats are, I, I, I don't have any polling or numbers or anything to back me up, but I just suspect that the fact that the Democrats have limited their, you know, their voice in the public sphere by limiting the number of debates, limiting, basically they're limiting their own advertising because they have less, it's basically free advertising when you do a debate. Yeah, and then they, the, uh, the the times when they scheduled the initial debates was pretty terrible too. Like there was one that was like the Saturday before Christmas, I think. Like, okay, so mm-hmm. everybody in the country has plans. And let's just put a debate when no one's watching. You know, like, like we're going to have this debate, but it's like, uh, just the token, you know, and I like you just throw it out there just to say we had one, you know, and it's, yeah, you're right, it's like, you're giving the Republicans just free reign, I remember those uh, Republican debates when they still had 
you know, undercard debates in prime time. And by the time you're done, you're watching like five hours of Republican debate. And it's like, you know, and, and then we've mm. got like an hour and a half without commercials, maybe like, like compared to mm. that once. And it's like in a terrible time yeah. slot that no one's watching. It's like, why are you giving them I the know. floor like this? I know. I mean, I'm a, I'm a Democrat and I'm a hardcore liberal and everything, but like, you know, after I watch so many Republican debates, I'm starting to wonder if the wall is a good idea, you know? Yeah, Democrats, you got to get on that. Yeah, exactly. No, I mean... Exposure for the candidates. Yeah, exactly. And Trump's a great salesman, and part of being a great salesman, and and you'll attest to this based on one of our favorite television commercials of all time, head-on, applied directly to the forehead. I mean, that's a a perfect example of repetition equaling sticking in your brain, equaling I will never forget that commercial as long as I live, even if I never purchase a head-on, applied directly to the forehead product. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're they're probably bankrupt, but um, <laughs> there's probably a class yeah, action lawsuit. No. Yeah, it probably caused cancer. No, I, yeah, your headache will stop now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what was it? Uh, coming back to Seinfeld, what was it? Serenity now, insanity later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, he's 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 really good at the talking points and repeating things and phrasing things in such a way that it seems like people agree with him. You know. I think like one of the scariest things if you're if as a member of a group of people I think one of the scariest things to have Trump say is that your group of people has some wonderful people <laughs> and great friends inside that group <laughs> because that probably means he wants to throw you in a gas chamber he does it to everybody he does it like the Muslims he's got Chinese buying his million dollar apartments or whatever in New York City yeah. he's got some Mexican you know day laborers working on his you know his his uh projects or whatever <laughs> i don't know he's uh, he's got friends all over the place i guess yeah right no whenever it's, it's funny that whenever he says that i always want to be like okay what are their names where do they live can we can we call them can we follow up on this like, yeah yeah I, i'm sure it would even if he had them he couldn't name them because nobody wants to be associated with this guy they, they want to be his like secret friends <laughs> Exactly. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, but that's true. Oh, yeah. I loved how when he um, first announced his candidacy, um, when he did that big press conference where he, of course, called the Mexicans rapists and murderers and all that, and then he, like, mm-hmm. it was at the end of that statement, he was like, and some of them, I'm sure, are good people. <laughs> As an yeah. after, as an yeah. afterthought, kind of a peon on to the, maybe a couple good ones in there. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I need to have some plausible deniability. He's a wild man when it comes to political speech making. Um, I, I think, like, and I think they're. I, I, I'm very curious what's going to happen to the Republican Party after this election because, and I think they're going to lose, but I'm not sure of that. You know, with the voting numbers, that's hugely worrying because. You know, in 2000, what was it, 2014, the midterm elections, Democrats didn't really show up. And we got, you know, Obama didn't get anybody to help him in his last two years in Congress. Mm-hmm. And if we have a situation like that in the presidential elections, I mean, usually in presidential elections, everybody comes out. I mean, to the degree that people come out for elections in the United States of America. But... um uh But it's very worrying if, if Democrats are not coming out for this election because... I think this is not, you know, every we we had a sense that George Bush was not George W. Bush was not very well prepared and was not going to be a good president. But I, I still remember back in 2000. I, I was too young to vote back then, but um, you know, I was flirting with the idea. There was some something about a John Cusack for president, 
kind of a, a fake candidacy and stuff. And it was kind of a thing that was going around on the early days of the internet back then. And I entertained the idea. I, I had no idea how bad this guy was going to be. Mm-hmm. And I mean, if, if, if W didn't look that bad back then, I mean, we can already see how bad Trump's going to be. So if Democrats don't show up, I mean, on the one hand, he would probably be a one-term president, which would be a good thing. And I've heard some people talk about, you know, well, if we don't get Bernie through the primary, then just don't vote in the general and let Hillary lose to whoever the Republican is. And then four years later, come back and take him out. But with Donald Trump, you know, <laughs> there may not be another election, literally. You know, <laughs> I think he could really get us to apocalypse. I really think he could take us there. <laughs> I, you know, and I, I don't think that's hyperbole. I mean, I, think the, I mean, the fact is he's he's talking about things that are blatantly unconstitutional. He's talking about things that go against, you know, the Geneva Conventions, the, the rules of war, the, the rules that we have in our own society, uh, you know, basically not being Nazis. Mm-hmm. He, he's not, he doesn't subscribe to that. So I think, you know, I think even if, even if Bernie doesn't make it, I think I will still vote for Hillary, but I won't like it very much. I liked Bill. Bill's a charming, personable guy. And... I think a lot of the, the Clinton legacy is kind of coming under fire right now, rightly or wrongly. And I think there are legitimate criticisms of that and stuff. But at the same time, the 1990s was a very, very, very different time. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just such a different political climate than today. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we were young back then, but I still remember. I, I think my life can probably be divided into pre-9-11 and then post-9-11. Mm-hmm. It, it's night and day. Mm-hmm. It's basically night and day. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, uh, whether we realized it or not, I think 9-11 really was the end of the 90s. Um, that was a pretty clear, you know, turning point. And, yeah, I mean, like you said about Hillary, it's like, what I hope I would hope whatever, you know, and I have had many problems with Hillary, of course, and I just feel like so many of the Clintons' uh, problems are self-inflicted um, just yeah. through their own secrecy and hubris and just trying to be so, like, walled off from the rest of the world. And, you know, even if there's not anything wrong, they act like there's something wrong with what they're doing. Um, They basically just, like, hand people clubs to beat them with um, constantly. You know, what was amazing to me was when uh, Hillary Clinton was like, well, Henry Kissinger, he's a great friend. It's like I I could just feel a thousand, uh, you know, Democratic, uh, you know, people just cringing at once. And it's just like, really, this was the architect of the illegal bombing of Cambodia, you know, you go down the line, you know, this was our great enemy for yeah. years, and just because he had the same job as you, all of a sudden he's such a great statesman or whatever. Um, and it's yeah. like that, I could just I could just imagine people just, just dying inside when they heard that, you know, but I would hope yeah. any, any of that feeling would be trampled down by the idea of Donald Trump being president, just a horrifying thought. Yeah, I, I don't know, I think like, you know, I talk to my mom sometimes and I think she's still, she's, she's totally on board for Hillary. Hmm. And yeah, I, I think she's she pays some she pays some attention to politics and stuff. So I don't know why that is. I think part of it is the fact that you know she's a feminist and there is something there is something. And I I think I could say that I'm a feminist to some degree too. Me too. Uh, depending on how you define that, based on I, I think there's different types of feminists, obviously. But I don't think that just nominating Clinton because she's a woman. I'm not saying that's the only reason my mom would do it, but I think that does play somewhat of a large role in my mom's decision-making process to some degree. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But when you look at the policies and when you look at just the way that Hillary Clinton flip-flops on everything, and, you know, that's that's an easy charge to make against almost any politician. But when you look at her, I mean, you know, I mean, the Iraq War, the Patriot Act, the TPP, I mean, gay marriage, I mean, just any issue that she has done a complete 180 on, not, you know, and I can understand people, you know, they have a change of heart or they have a change of conscience at some point in their life for whatever reason. But with Hillary Clinton, you can just almost always track it to when the public opinion changes in America. That's yeah. when she has her, you know, her moment of truth or whatever and gets right on the issue. And that's just not somebody... That's not that's not who we need as president, I don't think. And I, I don't think that that's somebody who's going to fix real problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, you brought up the gay marriage one, and that's just amazing to watch that progression just, just change on a dime, you know, like you said, based on the mm-hmm. opinion polls. And, like, when she was running for president in 2008, uh, I saw a clip. I don't remember who was interviewing her, but, like, they were like, so do you support gay marriage? And she didn't waste two seconds being like, nope. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then yeah, even all the way up to – a woman. Yeah, like 2000, I don't remember what it was, 2013 maybe was when she switched, but that was when it went above 50%, you know, in the polls, you know, that's when it, that's when it broke through and was critical mass, and she's like, oh, mm, skirt. <laughs> I'm embarrassed for her, mm-hmm. and when she does her high-pitched laugh, her like oh. laugh and stuff during the debate, <laughs> I'm embarrassed for her. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. I wish, you know, I just wanted to stop, you know, we. I, I'd rather have Bill running for a third term than Hillary <laughs> running, because... Uh, I don't know. I, I, maybe that's sexist, but she just doesn't have. There's some charm that Bill has that she just doesn't have. You know. Mm. Yeah. And, yeah. Know. No, I think your mom's probably not the only person that feels that way, though. And I think a lot of people have been. I, I think if you want to track it back, we can really probably track it back to the Monica Lewinsky thing when she stuck with him. And I think that was really the moment where people knew, okay, this woman's in it for the long haul. She's not going anywhere. Like she's going to stay in this marriage. She's going to get her own thing going. Um, she's going to, you know, and then she, of course, ran for senator in New York. And then she ran for president. That didn't work. But then she was secretary of state. You know, it was always a climb towards this moment. So from the, from really the yeah. moment of, of the Lewinsky affair, I think. I mean, she probably had designs on it before that. But that was really the watershed moment, I feel like, where it was like she made a decision to be like, yes, I'm in this all the way, you know? Yeah. Well, and, you know, I don't know enough about the particularities of their marriage to say that it wasn't a, you know, an honest, heartfelt, personal decision to stay with them. I mean, people cheat on people all the time and different decisions get made, Mm -hmm. um, rightly or wrongly, you know, outside. We can't really say one way or the other. But even if even if we say that she was for entirely personal reasons and for entirely, you know, good reasons, she decided to stay with Bill after all the things he did. She, even apart from that, she's an extremely ambitious person. Mm-hmm. And my problem is, I mean, ambition's good. I mean, you basically have to be ambitious. You know, a lot of people say, you know, when Obama was running in 2008, they said that he was kind of like this affirmative action beneficiary or something. And I never believed that. Somebody once said that you think that anybody, you know, you think anybody gets into the Senate or anybody gets elected president who wasn't the, the hungriest shark in the tank. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to be extremely ambitious to get into that thing. But at the same time, I think there's there's a difference between being ambitious in the furtherance of your ideals that you strongly and firmly hold 
versus being willing and able to throw your ideals out the window at any moment in the furtherance of your ambition, which is what I see from Clinton. So that's just that's that's the line for me, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and really, what the Clintons have always been good at, and it's it's kind of a testament to how much our politics have changed, especially on the right. Um, if you look back, I mean, Bill Clinton did adopt a fair number of center right positions um, during his presidency, and you know, there's a word for that that was basically coined during I don't know if it was coined then, but it was definitely in popular use was triangulation, um, basically yeah. taking someone's position before they can take it and use it against you. So, you know, that's that's something that the Clintons have always been good at. And if you look at, at, at down the line, yeah, the, the 90s were great and we had great prosperity and stuff. But if you look at kind of the policies like the welfare to work bill and the 94 crime bill with the, you know, all the terrible mass incarceration implications and on down the line, you know, a lot of those were center right in maybe even right just straight up positions that they took. Yeah. Um, and if you look at Hillary Clinton, she's really just a moderate Republican uh, of old, yeah. you know, not not of not of what we think of as Republican now. It's just like what yeah. traditionally was a center centrist, you know, Republican position on most stuff. Um, but the Republican Party has just gone off the deep end so far that it's that it's unrecognizable as that. But I, I do really do think that is what she is, you know, in the yeah. spectrum or whatever. I, th- I think if if all Republicans everywhere just realized for one day that they didn't hate Hillary Clinton. I could see her being switching over to the Republican side. I've thought about that too. Lieberman. I mean, you know, he he was a Democrat, but he was at every turn he was going with the Republicans on something. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of kind of what Hillary's like when it's popular, when it's politically advantageous for her to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. If they could just get, I've I've often thought that if they could just get past their white blinding hatred for her for whatever reason i guess because she supports planned parenthood maybe i'm not sure what the what the reasons are maybe just an instinctual hatred of the clintons i'm not sure but yeah i've always thought she would be which would have i don't understand why the right wouldn't embrace her she's so hawkish you know she's the one that's talking about a no-fly zone over syria you know <laughs> that's that's even you know more extreme than some of the republicans are proposing you know so Mm-hmm. Yeah, they want to. They want to let Russia keep doing things. But, yeah. Well, and you mentioned Planned Parenthood, and one. I think that reminds me of one thing about Donald Trump is the funny thing about him. And I, I think you know what he said about Planned Parenthood in the last debate, as far as well, two debates ago now maybe, but um, where he was basically saying that they do a lot of good things for women's health. Well, number one, it's surprising that he gives a damn about women's health because. <laughs> certainly very concerned with their menstrual cycles, as we saw with the the Megyn Kelly fiasco. But, but, you know, for for a Republican to be up on stage defending Planned Parenthood is unbelievable. And to do that in South Carolina before the South Carolina election, before the South Carolina voting, um, and to still win and to knock uh, Jeb Bush out of the race at that election, it's just, I mean... It's very clear that the the Republicans are not concerned. They're not overly concerned with the policy right now. Mm-hmm. They're not overly concerned with you know being true to conservative principles. Um, they're all about the style, and they like his style, and so they're going to vote for him. Yeah, and and it's just you know after and after the what was it the 2012 election they had that 
thing where they did a, have a self-analysis on the Republican side and say, what did we do wrong? What do we have to do for 2016? And the big thing they took away from that was that they had to reach out to uh, the Hispanic voters, and they had to stop being so hawkish on the border. And Donald Trump has <laughs> uh, absolutely upended that whole apple cart. Yeah, and you know he's 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 gone really hard on immigration, and at the same time he's also, you know, abandoned a few Republican talking points. He attacked George W. Bush, which is also something that I think a lot of Republicans realize that George W. Bush made a lot of mistakes and did a lot of bad things and ruined the country, but I don't think they would ever admit that publicly. And so I think it's amazing that George or that Trump could get away with saying that on the stage, and also defending Planned Parenthood in the same moment and not suffer. Mm-hmm. I think that's amazing. And so I think after the 2016 election, if they lose, and I think they're going to lose, but I don't know that. I think I, I, I'm just fascinated to see what happens to the Republican Party after this, because they, they have, you know, they're tearing themselves apart. Yeah, yeah, it really is amazing. Um, there was a This American Life episode a couple weeks ago that I thought was pretty poignant. Um, talked about the uh, kind of disconnect between people that are like the evangelical voters um, who seem to be coalescing around Ted Cruz because his father's a preacher. And the fact that, you know, there was such a litmus test. It's like, oh, you've got to be a man of faith and, you know, we're going to question Obama's faith at every turn and he's not really a Christian, he's a Muslim. And I know he says he's a Christian, but he's really not. And it's like Donald Trump says like two things towards being a Christian, and they're like, "Oh, good enough for me. He's a Christian. Sounds good to me." Yeah, I just can't believe that. Like, I, I'm just like, really, you're gonna like, like Obama was like, you know, after that Reverend Wright thing, was like going around the country praying at every church he could find. Um, and you still didn't believe him, and it's like you're gonna dig some, you know, out of context photograph of him, you know, wearing some hijab or not hijab. That's that's for women, but um, you know what I mean. <laughs> You know the the tur- turban or whatever the the garb was, you know, and it's like, oh look, he's a Muslim, and it's like Donald Trump, you know, who worships money himself and image and vanity and greed his whole life, says like two things about being a Christian. And you're like, well, good enough for me. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I mean, you're forgetting the. I mean, he's white. I mean, you know, looks like a Christian to me. <laughs> it looks like, looks like the Jesus I have in my barber shop. I don't know about yours. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, mullet Jesus. Uh, but um, he's yeah. It, it, I mean, I think it's fascinating. I think you know so much of his thing is kind of winking and nodding to certain people. You know, winking and nodding to the racists. Like, oh yeah, yeah. I'll you know, I'll pretend I didn't understand the question on the news media, and you know, so that all my over sixty voters or whatever who watch Fox News won't hear me disavow the racist vote. And then, you know, if you really if you really badger me on it, I'll go on Twitter the next day and sort of like walk back my comments and, you know, blame CNN's microphones or whatever. Um but, you know, my old voters don't really check Twitter, so <laughs> number one I'm kinda safe. I've already, you know, I've I've said what I needed to say to the older people on the T V, then I said what I needed to say to the younger people on the internet. And, you know, and yeah, I'll make a wink and a nod to being a Christian. I'll, I'll, you know, if you ask me what my favorite Bible verse is, I'll say, that's too personal. I, I don't want to, yeah, I, I can't, it's too personal for me. I just can't discuss it. Right. You know, oh, oh, okay. But you're a Christian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, just vote for me. <laughs> 
No, the uh, the amazing thing was, uh, if you look at his uh, appearance at Liberty University, which was pretty staggering, he um, had this moment where he uh, he tried to quote a Bible verse. Um, it was it was supposed to be from Second Corinthians, which anyone who's ever been around a Bible at all would would know that's how you say it. But he was like, "Let me tell you my favorite Bible verse from from Two Corinthians." <laughs> like he just totally totally butchered the delivery, and you could hear some like grumblings in the crowd being like, I don't think that's what it's called. You know? Yeah, it doesn't matter. You're right, exactly. Matter, yeah, he's like, I have a Bible. See, it's in my hand. Yeah, well, this, I don't know. This, I think this, this election might be, you know, six months ago, if you'd asked me, will there be an atheist in the White House at some point, I would have said, no, no, not in my lifetime. But, you know, Bernie Sanders is, you know, um, well, he's, his family is Jewish and stuff, and they've asked him about his faith and stuff, which is kind of like a, you know, number one, that question is problematic because, number one, there's, there's not supposed to be a religious litmus test for higher office in America. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they're going to ask him because they know there is with the voters and stuff. And, you know, he says, well, you know, whatever he says, I, you know, I just want people to be nice to each other, and uh, that's my faith. I'm like, hmm, that sounds pretty secular humanist to me. I think this guy's, he's probably, you know, he's probably pretty agnostic at least or maybe getting into the atheist spectrum. And Donald Trump, you know, I mean, that man probably believes in nothing, right? He wants the money, Lebowski. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, I, I think we've got a very good chance of getting an atheist, you know. Yeah. Not in name, in 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 practice. It's it's in pretty amazing. Yeah. No, I've I've noticed the same thing. Um, on the Bernie Sanders side, my theory is that since he's Jewish, and you can kind of conflate, you know, Judaism as a race and religion, and it's more than just um, a faith. I think he is able to wiggle around a little bit more than than some of the other candidates are on that. Um, you know, because yeah. he can still go out and with a straight face tell people he's Jewish, and he doesn't have to necessarily believe in God. You know, like that's, that's not something he's required to do as a Jew, you know? So mm-hmm. that's, that's, I think that's probably the way it will, you know, if he doesn't get the nominee or nomination or doesn't get in the white house, I think that eventually we'll see something similar where somebody has some cover. And then like you said, Donald Trump, he can say he's a Christian all day, but I, I don't, I don't, I don't detect an ounce of humility about that guy. <laughs> so. Yeah, no, it's uh, well, it's, it's getting closer. And, um, and I, I think that's one thing people forget Democratic voters when they think about, you know, well, we elected an African-American last time, and this time we'll elect a woman. Um, but, you know, we don't want to elect another old white man, right? But, I mean, Bernie Sanders is Jewish, which is a minority. <laughs> so, I mean, that, this would be the first Jewish president of America. So, I mean, that's still a minority. You'd still be making history in that way if that's what you want to do if that's important to you and how you cast your vote. Which I still don't understand why that's why that's important. You know, I mean, that's I understand that we've had old white men up until Obama, but like, uh, if, like you said before, uh, when we've talked previously, it's like if, if the only litmus test you have is being a woman, well, why didn't we just you know recruit Sarah Palin and just be done with it? You know, like if that's your only qualification, yeah. I mean, yeah. And I'm in South Korea. South Korea in 2012 they elected Park uh, Geun Hye to be the president. She's the daughter of a dictator from, I think, 1961 to 1979 or 1980, around that time when he was assassinated. But this is the first, you know, female leader Korea's had in 
in probably a hundred years, maybe maybe forever. I, I don't know much about the history of the ancient kings and queens and stuff or whatever. But you know, she's the, she's basically the first female president. And I tell you what, it's not all it's cracked up to be. There's nothing, you know. Uh, the corruption still exists. The good old boys clubs still exist. You know, it's business as usual. And I just feel, I, I feel, I, I feel like I've already had kind of a, a preview of what a Hillary Clinton presidency would be like over here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the the power structures stay in place no matter who the president is. You know, whatever what they look like. You know, um, and that that doesn't change. You know, those those people around them, the the power behind the throne or whatever that that doesn't cycle out with you know if you just elect somebody that has a, a different uh, skin tone or or gender you know that's not going to change the general power structure that's already in place you know yeah well I, I think it does you know even just the symbolic um aspect of you know opening that door or whatever is mm-hmm. I, think, I think that is good and i think it's important oh absolutely i don't think yeah. that means we just vote for the first woman that comes along i, I do think it should be you know the person who shares values and stuff like that. So I, I do think, you know, if not this time, then maybe next time or whenever. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there was a lot of talk about when I was in America back in 2014 when things were at a lot earlier, a much earlier stage than they are now. I think it was September 2014 I was there. And my mom was telling me all about, you know. Elizabeth Warren? <laughs> Elizabeth Warren. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And my mom was really trying to sell me on her. And I was like, you know, I was kind of a little bit standoffish because to me I was just like, well, you know, I think I think it's going to be Hillary. At that point I hadn't really, uh, you know, I just wanted to win basically. And I didn't see her winning. And even for the first couple of months when Bernie was kind of taking off, I was still kind of like, hey, yeah, he, he sounds nice, kind of like Elizabeth Warren, but, I, you know, I want a winner. I just don't know that he's going to do it. And then as he continued to gain a little bit, very quickly, within like within a month or two, I kind of switched sides. I was like, no, this guy, this guy might be the real deal. And Hillary, it's, it, it, it's not just about winning. It's like we've got to get somebody with the right values in there. I think as far as vice presidential picks and stuff, um, Number one, I think we all know that Hillary's not going to choose Bernie. No. I'm pretty sure that Bernie is not going to choose Hillary. No. Although there is, a, you know, there is some tradition of choosing somebody else as your vice president who is also one of the candidates against you in the primary. That's not going to happen this time, I think we both know. And so I think it would be very exciting if Bernie got in there to, you know, to take Elizabeth Warren as the vice presidential pick. I think that's his natural play. I feel like his if Elizabeth Warren had run for office because I remember there was a kind of draft Elizabeth Warren movement um you know some time ago that uh she of course denied she didn't want to run for president yet I'm sure she will eventually you know she she kind of denied that but I feel like a lot of her voters are his voters you know like if, if but for her not running that's kind of what his support base kind of draws from wouldn't you agree yeah, I think so. I guess the smart move would be to, you know, to take somebody a little bit more mainstream so you, you drag in their voters, too. But I don't know. I think a lot of people are pretty passionate about her, too, and I think them together on a ticket. Of course, we may not even see any vice presidential picks until after the primary is over. So it can look a little bit presumptive to start choosing your your vice president before you've you've clinch the deal well i we've uh we've been talking for like an hour now about the election uh was there was there any other topics you wanted to wanted to cover no <laughs> okay no <I'm> just... <laughs> well great talking to you chad <laughs>
I'm just kidding. No, I'm, I mean, I'm open. I mean, I don't, I don't know what else, uh, what I didn't have anything else to okay. my mind, but, uh, sure. yeah, if you had any other, uh, other, uh, areas you wanted to explore and yeah. Well, um, I, I'm sure people are curious, you know, cause I mean, we've had these rumblings with the, uh, North Korean sanctions and, you know, of course, Lil Kim is, you know, acting a fool as usual, or at least talking crazy. Um, mm-hmm. but, uh, but that's, but I feel like, uh, one of the things that I didn't realize until I really got into researching North Korea is that this is, this propaganda machine they have is 24 seven and it's always dialed up to the highest degree. Um, and it's always in the most dramatic and apocalyptic terms, uh, you know, that they release stuff. But when, when North Korea says something, what do the people in South Korea, do they take it seriously? Are they just like, this is all bluster? What? Cause you know, when, when I hear, you know, we're readying the nuclear arsenal or whatever, you know, I'm just like my, I kind of clench up a little bit and I'm like, Ooh, that's not, well, that's not good. <laughs> mm. I think but, most South Koreans just go to work. <laughs> nobody, generally, nobody over here takes it that seriously. It's uh, you know because he, he's kind of. I mean, everybody in the North Korean leaders, all three of the Kims, Kim Kim Il Sung, Kim Dong Il, and uh, yeah, Kim Jong Un. Now they just you know they constantly, constantly, constantly threaten, and most of the time it's just saber rattling and stuff. You know, there have been some small incidents where people got killed here and there, people got kidnapped or something, or they tried to assassinate the president. They accidentally killed his wife on stage and stuff like that. Amazing thing, like when they they had some people who tried to assassinate the president, the current president's father. I think it was in the 1970s, and he was giving a speech, and his wife was sitting on the stage behind him. And North Korean assassin comes out and shoots, and he hits the wife, and the wife is taken off stage and taken to the hospital where she dies, but the president, uh, Bok Chung-hee at that time, continued giving his speech until he finished his speech, and then he went to the hospital, I guess. <laughs> and I've talked to Koreans about that. I was like, um, doesn't that seem weird? I mean, like in America, I mean, the speech is over. <laughs> when, when somebody, when something like some sort of a security thing like that happens, the speech is over, everybody understands, and if your wife gets shot, you better go to the hospital to be with your wife, or you're not going to, you know, be reelected <laughs> because you're not a family values kind of guy. They're like, no, no, you know, in Korea, you know, continuing to give the speech was kind of like the right thing to do at that time. Hmm. Voters there were, it was a, it was a right-wing dictatorship at that time. Uh, right. <laughs> but still. I just, I don't know if I could sell like that, that one on the home front, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, that's pretty icy. So, I, yeah, so you're saying that there's like a certain stoicism about the South Korean people and in their character that, that, you know, they kind of take things in stride and they just kind of go about their business. I don't know about stoicism. I think there's a lot of passion and emotion most of the time. Hmm. More than expected sometimes, but um, really necessary sometimes. But, but I mean, as far as North Korea, I don't think anybody takes them seriously as a threat. And I think that's, you know, to some degree, I think that's the right approach because if we take them seriously, it encourages them and stuff. But, um, you know, they don't, they don't have to be, we only have to be wrong one time. And, mm-hmm. you know, millions of people in Seoul could be dead. And, you know, that's not like, this isn't like George Bush with, you know, mushroom clouds over Washington, D.C. I mean, it's, it's it's very, very, it is a possible thing that could happen. So, so you know, every time, you know, when, we, when something happens where North Korea does something or America does something or South Korea does something, you know, sometimes I talk to the Koreans and they're like, oh, you know, it just happens. We're not worried. And I'm like, well, yeah, yeah, but, you know, it only takes one time. 
and uh, and someday something's going to have to happen. It's going to have to either the regime up there is going to collapse, or there's going to be a war, or you know something's going to happen. And the scary thing is, I think that you know America and South Korea can take North Korea no problem. Although North Korea could do huge damage to South Korea. But the big thing I worry about is that China won't accept it. Because, I mean, that's what happened in the Korean War in 1950 to 1953. America and South Korea pushed, and the United Nations pushed all the way up to, I think it was called the Yalu River, which is the river that separates China from North Korea, which is still the place where, you know, people cross over it trying to escape, or journalists cross over it, or people stand in the middle and take pictures and stuff. China is very concerned about not having American supported countries right on their border. And so, obviously, if South, if North Korea collapses, then the South is going to take over, and it's going to be part of South Korea. It's going to be one Korea, but it's going to be, you know, it's going to be one Korea unified under the South Korean model of leadership. And I don't think China is going to take that sitting down. Yeah, I mean, so, China is basically the enabler in the situation for North Korea. I mean, is there any other country besides China that even deals with North Korea or has their back in any way? I mean, that they seem like they're their lifeline in a lot of ways. I think, like, I think North Korea was shipping missiles through Cuba or something a few years ago. There, there are a few countries out there that America doesn't like or hasn't liked in the past, and I'm very happy now that now to see that Obama's kind of thawed things with Cuba a little bit. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, there are a few kind of pariah states that deal with North Korea a little bit, I think. But nobody big except for, you know, China and Russia that I know of. Um, maybe I may be missing something there. But, um, yeah, they don't have a lot of support in mm-hmm. the world. Right. Well, that's, you know, I'm glad to hear that the South Korean people don't take them very seriously. That makes me feel a little bit better. Um, But, yeah, I mean, something's going to have to change eventually. Um, I don't know how it's going to shake out, but I know that there's a, I mean, you told me about this before, but there is a movement to reunify um, under some sort of peaceable terms. And I think you seem to indicate to me, at least as far as I remember, that that was kind of more of a dream of the older generation that remembers one Korea before all this happened. And, you know, do you still see the seeds of that happening? Like people actually thinking out loud that, you know, this could happen, reunification? So people talk about that. Um, Well, actually, I think it's Maybe it's it's a. I think it is a little bit older people who have you know distant relatives or even direct blood relatives who are still alive in North Korea that they get to meet every several years when they have a kind of a, a family reunification thing, which is always uh, held captive to the political dictates of whatever is going on. It's always kind of like a. It's kind of like a carrot that that North Korea holds out there that you know, oh, we're going to let the families meet in two months and then. South Korea or America does something they don't like, and, oh, the meeting is canceled. No, no, the families will not see each other. Why do you do this to the families? And so, you know, that's something. I, I think there's, you know, I think there are some younger people in Amer- in Korea who, I don't know. Korean politics is very interesting, and we may have to do a future podcast about that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm not an expert, but, you know, I've been here for nine years, and I've seen things. Um, and generally the older generation is pretty conservative and pretty anti-communist. And some people who were involved in the 1980s and the, in the uh, democracy protests and stuff have become a little bit more liberal and open to this kind of thing. And some you know, right-wingers in Korea would even say that they are actually communists or something like this. 
And so they're like traders or something. And so some young people and some middle-aged people have a pretty pretty idealized view of what North Korea actually is, I think, sometimes. Hmm. So it is, uh, it's very complicated. So I, I don't think that a peaceful reunification would happen. I guess it could happen. The thing is, I mean, if there's a peaceful reunification, what's going to happen if, if South Korea takes over North Korea is South Korea is going to use cheap labor in North Korea. They're going to abuse the North Koreans. It's going to be really nasty for a long time. It's going to be a two-class society, very clearly. Is that just because the North Korean people are so economically depressed already that they would just see that as an opportunity to get cheap labor, or would it be some sort of retaliation for all the years of heartache? Um, not. I don't think it would be retaliation for heartache. I think it would just be the fact that, you know, <laughs> South Korean conglomerates and businesses, you know, they don't really care about labor. They don't like unions. They don't like any of this stuff. And, you know, when it comes to producing things, they ship off to China, they ship off to India, they ship off to Vietnam or wherever to produce things. They, you know, Samsung has had this thing where they, people who were working in one of their television plants got a whole bunch of a special kind of cancer from the working conditions and stuff out there. Mm. It's it, the, In Korea, it's just not a, you know, this is not a place that values workers' rights very strongly. And so if they have a huge market of cheap, you know, uneducated labor in North Korea, I just, I know they're going to take huge advantage of that. Mm-hmm. So to the to the degree that that's something that I, I think will definitely happen when there's a reunification, I think that, you know, the Kims are uh, in North Korea are correct in delaying that as long as possible. But at the same time, I don't think that they're doing it because they actually really, really care or are aware of what would be best for the North Korean people. Yeah, yeah, that seems to be an afterthought if it's a thought at all, you know, to them, you know, what's what's best for the people. It's it's a pretty pretty terrible situation up there. But yeah, you're right. I mean, as soon as it happened, you'd still have a bunch of economically depressed unskilled labor, you know, that <laughs> would just be there sitting and yeah, just waiting for somebody to take advantage of, I guess. With businesses and stuff. I think one thing that's kind of funny and interesting is that, you know, they, everybody always says, "Oh, don't travel to North Korea" because South, regular South Koreans don't have that option, but Foreigners living in Korea do have that option sometimes to go and take a tour of North Korea for a few days and, you know, drop a few hundred dollars up there or whatever in, in the whatever the local economy. Although I don't think very much of it gets into the local economy. <laughs> but, you know, people always say, oh, that's terrible. You're putting money in the, you know, in the coffers of this dictatorial communist regime and stuff that has human human rights record and everything. But the fact is the South Korean government has run an industrial complex in a place called Kaesong, which is just a little bit, you know, I don't know how many, 30 or 40 kilometers north of Seoul. And they've employed something like, I think it's like 50,000 North Korean workers or something there. And they've poured millions and millions of dollars into the North Korean economy for several years. And that was recently shut down. They shut that down after this latest round of, of kind of back and forth and everything. And now that now it's kind of come out that they realized that that eighty percent of the money was not going to the workers but was going directly to the government hmm. and so and they've known about this for a long time, and it turns out that this might have actually been a violation of u n bans on doing business with North Korea and South Korea, you know the number one enemy of North Korea has been doing it mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's very funny to me that they say that you know people should not travel to North Korea because you're propping up the regime when Dozens, do, uh, dozens, and dozens of South Korean um, 
corporations and companies have been doing it for years and to a much larger degree with a lot more money and everything. So kind of hypocritical. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Now, you've never been to, to North Korea on one of these trips, right? Uh, I haven't. Um, one woman from our graduating class at Mitchell, though, has, I believe, Erin. Uh, oh, really? I'm not going to give her full name just for, you sure. know, she may not want to be put on blast like that. Sure. When she was in Korea for three years, and uh, she traveled up there one, at least one time, I think. Hmm. Saw a few things, so. Have you ever been tempted to do. try? Yeah, I have, but then again, I don't want to get kidnapped right now. <laughs> so I don't know how much. Although if I got kidnapped, I could take a little bit of time off work, maybe, which would be nice. Hey, but if they uh, kidnap you, maybe Bill Clinton would come and secure your release. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. He might send Hillary. <laughs> <laughs> well, not after not after you hear not after you hears this podcast, maybe. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. None of the Clintons are coming. Maybe we'll send Al Gore. <laughs> so, anyways, yeah, I, I haven't really been tempted to go up there recently. I thought about it for a couple of years, but I just I didn't end up doing it. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't blame you. I mean, it would be a fascinating thing to see, but yeah, it's like, first of all, like they're probably just going to show you what they want to show you. You're not going to get to see what's necessarily actually happening there. Um, I don't know if you ever saw that vice documentary with Dennis Rodman, um, when he went up there and they had these like fake computer labs that people were just staring at the the desktops of the computers because they didn't know how to use the computer. They just herded these people into rooms and pretended like they were working. If and when reunification does occur, occur, I think think the world's going to be surprised to find out how many similarities and commonalities there are between the two Koreans still. Mm -hmm. Um, I may be wrong about that, but I think that that's something that's going to happen. I kind of wish they would reunify just so I can see if my predictions come to pass. (laughs) I could be way off. We are announcing reunification today, mostly just because it would amuse Jonathan. <laughs> yeah, the cha wants to prognosticate. Anyways, I think that's like, yeah, I guess that's most everything on North Korea that I can think of. I mean, mm-hmm. that's North Korea in a nutshell right mm-hmm. now. Well, I uh, actually, would, to, to pivot to something else about Korea, I uh, I did read that book I told you about, The Song Machine, um, and it had a whole chapter section about k-pop um and i know you haven't been you said you haven't been up on k-pop uh, lately but just for people that don't know what k-pop is and are only familiar with maybe american style pop music uh, what what could you say to kind of tell people what what it's about uh, generally they take very young children and they put them through an intensive training regimen for you know five or ten years or whatever and then they when they turn about 15, 16, or 17, they put them out there and they hypersexualize them and everything. And they, you know, they go around and they sleep with certain business people or whatever and they get promoted. And, you know, and some of the music is very catchy. And so I don't really have a problem with the music. Um, some of the music bothers me because it's, it annoys me or something, but some of it I really like. Um, a lot of foreigners in Korea would just say, oh, I don't listen to K pop. It's, it's totally manufactured garbage and I just don't like it. It's just, it's just catchy. That's all it is. But for me, I'm, you know, I'm not a musical elitist. So catchy is good enough for me sometimes. So there have been a lot of songs that I liked, especially my first couple of years in Korea. I, I made a few Facebook posts where I put up a whole bunch of YouTube videos of certain songs and stuff that I liked or that were really popular at the time. Mm-hmm. 
but these days I just I just hear what's going on in the in the shops I walk by or in the stores I go into. But I don't really keep up with the new acts or <clears throat> who's who's hot or who's not right now. It's really amazing if you look at these K-pop groups, how many members some of them have. Um, we, we think of boy bands and you know things like that, or for equivalents in America, and it's like you know what's the most that you could possibly have? I guess it's five. You know that's pretty much the the upper limits of that. You know all the way down to ninety-eight degrees with with three. I guess you should say, but um, but these K-pop groups, I mean. I mean, there's just like a dozen people, and you're expected to know like all their names and stories and stuff. It's like well, a lot of the teenagers and the kids they have their favorite. You know, there's a band, and they all look about the same. They've all had plastic surgery. They're all wearing eyeliner and styling their hair and wearing similar suits and everything. But all these kids, like they've got their favorite. I don't know how they decide. <laughs> I, I forget what I was going to say. I don't know. I don't know. That, yeah. But, yeah, no, I guess, I mean, for a large band, like Super Junior. Yeah, I, I think that's who I'm thinking band. of, Super Junior, yeah. Mm-hmm. They had, I think they had 13 at their high water mark. And their song, their, their song was actually an interesting case because at first the song, which I'm talking about, was called Sorry, Sorry. And Sorry Sorry was a song that at the beginning I hated. I absolutely hated it. But then one day I was out and I was riding around in the car with my friends and I went to several places and for some reason I heard Sorry Sorry like four or five times. And by the end of the day it was totally stuck in my head and I was like, no, I actually, it's growing on me and I like that song. And now I, you know, nowadays I, I still, if I hear that song, I'm like, oh, hey, there's that song I like. So, yeah, it, it grows on you sometimes. Yeah, yeah. In the uh, song machine book that I read, um, they they did talk about how that works with the catchiness. It's like a lot of times when you hear these songs, the first time you do kind of just be like, huh? But it's the repetition, even within the song. Like they'll have, they talk about how you know there used to be like one big hook in the song. You know, the hook was the big thing that drew mm-hmm. people in. But like with these songs now, especially in K-pop, there's many hooks all through the song. You know, so it's like even if you listen for like twenty seconds to a song, you're still getting a, a mini hook that hooks you in, even within that you know the structure of the larger hook, and that's like a, even a large, even a thing that wasn't around a few years ago. So, well, I'm I'm not a I'm not a musical guy, Bob, <laughs> but um, <laughs> you, you might have to talk to my younger brother about the about mm-hmm. the musicality of it all. But um, right. but yeah, I mean, some of the songs do seem pretty complex in a way. I mean, they're simple, but they have some interesting things going on in them and stuff. Um. I mean, if I were going to recommend a few songs for people to sample, and granted, these songs are going to be, you know, in some cases, five, six, seven, or eight, or even nine years old, but I think I think they're still pretty good and pretty representative of the, the oeuvre, I guess, if that's how you say it. If it's not, you can just edit that part sure. out. <laughs> anyway, these are a very representative sample of the K-pop uh, catalog, we could say, maybe. I would strongly recommend Big Bang's song called Maji Makinsa, which means last goodbye or last greeting. Um, I would recommend Epic High's kind of lighter song called Love, Love, Love. Um, I would re- recommend, let's see, Sonyo Day, which is Girls' Generation, which is probably one of the most popular ones, or it used to be. Um, their song, maybe Baby or G. Baby or G or two of their pretty popular songs. And those songs are very, very, you know, poppy, just totally bubblegum pop, but infectious and catchy. And, you know, people could get something out of that, maybe. I don't know. 
Awesome. Um, yeah, for for a little bit of a darker one, maybe a band called Kara, K-A-R-A, their song called Lupang, which is kind of a catchy song too. So those are those are four or five songs I would recommend. Yeah, those are my those are Big Daddy Cha Cha's K-pop recommendations. Awesome. Well, yeah, maybe we can get you to listen to some more K-pop of of the newer times and give us a, an update. Because um, I I mean it's funny to me that you know K-pop has made such a concerted effort to break into America. I feel like um, mm-hmm. who was the it was one of the girl groups. I felt like they tried they tried to break in America and it didn't work or something. Who, who I can't remember. That and the Wonder Girls. It yes. Sonia Shide or Wonder Girls. It was, I think it was, was the Wonder Girls. Yeah. Yeah, the Wonder Girls Tell Me was a really big one. When I first got off the airplane, that thing blew up everywhere. I mean, to a degree that I don't think even popular songs blow up today. That song was just ubiquitous, I guess you could say. Right. So, Wonder Girls Tell Me. Also, Wonder Girls uh, So Hot. Uh, another catchy song basically bragging about how hot she is there's another song somebody did a song called I Am The Best um, I forget who did that that might have been Miss A mm. maybe it was Miss A I Am The Best okay yeah there's a lot of these songs are very a lot of bragging mm-hmm. but but interesting and fun to listen to yeah it's just funny to me that where they have all these boy groups and girl groups and they're all trying to break into, you know, all these different markets in America. But the one song I feel like from the Korean market that has broken through is Gangnam Style. <laughs> oh, yeah. Gangnam Style. Yeah. 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 Or, I'm sorry. How do you say that? We'll say it again. Uh Kangnam. It's kind of like somewhere between a G and a K. Kangnam. Uh, Kangnam. That's that's interesting. We've been saying it wrong over here for however long. Then. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The the romanization of a lot of Korean words leaves something to be desired because <laughs> when you read it phonetically, it doesn't you know it doesn't sound like what it should sound like in Korean. <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah, Kangnam style was huge, obviously. Um, and Sai, even today, I I joined a gym. Child's trying to take care of his health a little bit. So I joined a gym last week, and um, I was in the gym earlier today after work, and um, I heard Sai's new song, which is, I think it's called, like, Ajoshi or Father or Dad or something like that. Mm-hmm. And the chorus is all about, you know, I got it from my daddy or something. Where'd you get that body from? I got it from my daddy. <laughs> it's, it's pretty funny because, obviously, Sai's body is not something that girls often ask him where he got it from, but he's going to tell them, you know, he wants them to know. He's... So you might check that out. Check out Sai's newest song. Yeah. Something dad or daddy or something. I, I don't know the actual name of it. Yeah, it's, it's pretty funny. Yeah. Also so sad for the uh, young Korean children that have gotten this plastic surgery and, and, and exploited themselves in all these ways to become famous. And, and here the one person that breaks through is this kind of pudgy, you know, goofy, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and, and actually, I, I don't know. I, I think there, I, I had some issues or whatever. I had some concerns and questions about that when Cy first became popular because because there is something like there is something they say. There's some some I don't know what we could say like kind of an academic theory about the feminization of the Asian male mm-hmm. and. Western societies and stuff, and so like it's kind of like that William Hung guy who got really popular mm-hmm. on that reality show. Amer- uh, I think it was American Idol. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. I don't. He did some song 
I don't remember the song. It was the Ricky Martin song. Oh, Living La Vida Loca? Yeah. Or She Bangs? She Bangs, She Bangs. Oh, yeah. but she moves. I she do, moves. I, I, go, I go crazy. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, every girl in history. Um, so, but... <laughs> But there could be, <laughs> there could be. I mean, there there is a theory though that um, Westerners are threatened by the um, masculinely sexualized Asian male or something in Western society. And so, when there's people like, I mean, did you see that movie, uh, Ninja Assassin or whatever, that had the guy Rain in it, or his Korean name is B, which means Rain. B. Rain. I'm familiar with the Rain because didn't he have a few songs at some point? Oh yeah, he had a great song you should check out called Rainism. Why why would I forget that? Rain look up Rain Rainism. He's he's totally channeling Michael Jackson in this song. He's doing a ridiculous dance. Mm-hmm. The chorus is I'm a bad boy, I'm a bad bad boy. I'm a bad boy, I'm a bad bad boy. It's very funny. <laughs> um <laughs> I think he did another song later where he said he was a good boy. Somebody, somebody's got a new song that says, I am a good boy, the chorus. So they're very concerned about how good or bad they're being. So um, did he feel like he swung too far in the bad category and he needed to come back? Actually, the, the, the new song, the good boy song, might have been somebody else. That might not have been him. But okay. It's interesting just to see that, that kind of that range of uh. behaviors in the K-pop <laughs> spectrum. Good to bad. It's very, you know, this dichotomy there. Oh. <laughs> so, um, but, but anyways, like so, so Rain, you know, is this, you know, really sexy guy. He's got abs. He's, you know, he's totally ripped and everything. Total sex object in Korea and everything. He doesn't get popular in America. But again, like a la William Hung, this, this kind of this chubby, non-threatening, goofy, doesn't take himself too seriously kind of guy is the guy who gets popular. Because I would say a lot of K-pop stars take themselves very seriously. And so he's he's definitely the exception to a lot of rules. Right. Some people some people would say that there might be some problem with the fact that Western audiences and global audiences embrace Psy because he was a non-threatening Asian male. But I don't know. I don't know. That's an academic theory. That's just something that people, you know... People might consider, but yeah, but he had it. It was Gangnam Style was a very catchy song. And then, of course, his I'm career going. over here ended after that video came out of him riding a tank. And wasn't he saying some anti-American song or something like in a previous incarnation of him or something? Oh yeah, I, I forgot about that whole subplot. Yeah, I totally forgot about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's well, he. I would have to look back into that, but he he may be more of a left-wing Korean or something. I don't know. Right now he's getting so much money, he probably has maybe become a little bit more... He's, his feelings may have softened on the United States since then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure he loves America. He and Snoop Dogg. They had a song, too, called Hangover a couple, like a year ago. Maybe. Wait, I'm sorry. He had a song with Snoop Dogg? Yeah, Snoop Dogg like came to Korea and they were drinking soju, which is the Korean national liquor. What? How did I miss this? <laughs> well, look it up. That's what that's what they made the Googles for. It's a series of tubes. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> oh, okay. um, one more, one more, um, one more K-pop band that I would be remiss if I did not mention is one called it was called it's called Turtles or Turtle or Turtle Family or something like that. It's uh, Kobuki in Korean, I think. And they had a song maybe around 2007, 2008, 2009 that was called Sing La La La. Okay? Mm-hmm. And this is an outstanding song. 
very much, very, very much in this in the style of Psy. And this guy, the guy who's the main singer, he's a chubby guy, and he's really funny, really funny. Got a deep voice and everything. Great singer, has a really funny song. And he's got these two women who are in his band, too. And unfortunately, like a year later, he died of a heart attack. So he's gone. The The band doesn't exist anymore. But you've got to watch that. If you watch one video of all these recommendations, I strongly recommend Turtles Sing La La La. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, what I'll do is I'll put uh, links up on the episode once I post all this, and we'll just do like a playlist. Okay, great. Yeah, Sing La 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 in the video, he he comes to these two women who live right next to each other, who are his two bandmates. They live next to each other in these apartments and stuff, and he, he comes to one of them in the guise of the devil. He's like dressed up in a tuxedo, but he's got his devil horns on and a tail and everything, and his pitchfork. And he convinces her, he gives her like a credit card style thing, and he convinces her that if she swipes the credit card in his ass, then boxes of free stuff will just drop out of the sky at her apartment. So she starts doing that, and he has to run away because his butt starts hurting. (laughs) And and then he goes over next door to her neighbor, and he tells her the same thing. And so she starts buying things through the credit card, too. And and then, like, at the end of the thing, their, their apartments just explode. And the whole thing was like an argument against getting into debt by online shopping, which is a problem amongst women in Korea, apparently. Uh-huh. And so, but it's a, it, so it's a song with a message. Okay? <laughs> That's what he was about. And they killed him. So give that one a watch. I will. <laughs> we'll definitely have to have you back on to uh, explore the realms of, of K-pop. This is a, a, an amazing genre of, of music. Uh, and I have seen, I remember some of you showing me some of those uh, videos and songs that you were talking about. And it's, it is super catchy, you know. And, you know, like I, I, I'm also, I love music, but I'm also not a music snob. And I think that kind of opens you up more to things you wouldn't necessarily listen to otherwise if you just say, oh, that's just pop, that's just da-da-da. It's like, well, if it's so easy, why doesn't everybody do it, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. If you can write a song that'll make you a million dollars, if I were you, I'd go out and do that tomorrow. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just want to like tell people who are music stops, just like, lighten up, listen to some bad music. Well, uh, is there anything else we didn't get to this time? I mean, we can have you back again to, to rap about whatever, but is there anything you want to promote? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um... God, nothing. I, there's probably things I should promote. Uh, I don't know what they are right now. But um, no, I yeah, no. I think we've had a productive discussion here, and I yeah, I'd love to. I look. I really look forward to hearing your your podcast when it goes up. I'm already subscribed and everything. I downloaded SoundCloud today, so oh um, sweet. Yeah. Well, yeah, man. Your yeah, your episode two, and we're gonna we're gonna just keep doing it, man. I think it's gonna be fun, but. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I don't know how much deeper I can go into this into the K-pop, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, hole, but uh, we'll see. There may be some gems that still to be mined down there somewhere. Oh, I'm sure there is. Yeah. Well, uh, thanks for talking with us, man. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Glad to be here. Cool. Well, I'll talk to you soon, dude. All right. All right. Good luck, Bob. Thanks a lot. Talk to you later. Yeah. Bye.